Hey everybody, welcome back on the macro trading floor. This is Alf, the founder of the Macro Compass, and as always with me, Andreas Steno, the founder of Steno Research. Basically, um, sending live out of New York <laughs> today, Alf. Um, it's been an interesting week here, meeting um, institutional investors, uh, but also um, quite a few high net worth individuals, and the mood is is still mediocre at best, um, in my opinion. And it's very, very interesting how many of these institutional players, they view the situation in the banking system in the US relative to um, to Europe. So maybe let's start with a discussion on, on that particular theme, because, I mean, obviously, we've had some stress in the US banking system again this week, um, not to the same extent as we've seen in, in earlier weeks. But the overwhelming conclusion here among the bigger players, uh, and I've met some of the big, big ones, um, is that the US banking system is much more vulnerable to high interest rates and to the story of deposits leaving banks for money market accounts. The US banking system is much more fragile due to lack of liquidity legislation, at least below the 250 billion threshold. And the U.S. banking system is much more fragile since it is much more fragmented. You have many more banks to cover from um, a um, legislative perspective. And I mean, I get that, but I don't hear from the same players that the loan books are better in Europe than they are in the U.S. They, they don't really talk about the credit angle of this, uh, while they talk more about the legislative angle and the um, issues surrounding having 4,000 banks uh, under scrutiny. Um, so what do you make of this story of like the relative solidity of, of banks in Europe versus the US? So we've explained, Andreas, that Europe has a tighter regulation in general. For instance, um, interest rate risk stress test in Europe is mandatory. Uh, in the US, there is no such thing, which means, you know, it's already less layer of, of, of regulation in the US than in Europe. And also small banks are much more frequent and abundant in the US than in Europe. So the combination of the two from um, a regulatory standpoint presents challenges. But here we're again talking about liquidity. And I think the Federal Reserve has shown that if that is the only problem, literally having to fire sale treasuries to meet deposit outflows, they can backstop that relatively well. And um, look, in Europe, there is no facility like that at all. Um, and we haven't seen any major stress. The thing about Europe, Andres, that makes me think is in the US, it is pretty simple to move your money away from a bank into a money market fund. And in Europe, we don't really have uh, this money market fund industry, at least not as advanced as we have it in, in the US, right? It's not that easy, I think, to transfer money. Uh, if you're if you're a corporate treasurer, then yes, you probably woke up. If you still had money uh, as an unsecured bank deposit, you probably bought some boons, all right? Uh, but if you're a retail investor, I don't think it's that easy uh, or comparatively easy in Europe as it is in the US to move your deposits away. It's a bunch of combination of stuff together that makes me think that, yes, in principle, I think Europe is a bit more immune, but even the US, Andreas has, I think, shown that if the problem is only liquidity, the Fed can backstop that pretty well. We can chat about the numbers as well being released, but um, you talked about loan books. So you want to add something there? 
Yeah. Um, let me add one thing before we talk about uh, the loan books, because if we look at European money market funds, um, they basically almost ceased uh, to exist after the regulation implemented in 2018. Uh, one of the things that uh, they were told to do by regulators was to have a diversification of at least 20 assets. Uh, so max 5% of each position, as far as I remember, which is a very large diversification in terms of assets or tools to invest in in a money market fund. You need to find 20 different bills, right? <laughs> um, so effectively, regulators uh, killed the money market uh, industry in, um, in Europe uh, a couple of years ago. But having said that, what annoys me about the European loan book is the following. So I've tried to calculate the exposures of European banks to commercial real estate. I know that the issue with commercial real estate is not as large in Europe as it is in the US from a price yeah. perspective, but very interestingly, only around 33% of European banks actually report their exposures to commercial real estate. The European Central Bank has even written officially that this is a major issue, that they don't have quality data on commercial real estate exposures of banks. So we're basically kept in the dark by quite a few banks in Europe when it comes to this exposure. Um, when we calculate the exposure to commercial real estate from the banks we actually can get data from relative to the US, then I think the overwhelming conclusion is that some of these regional US banks, they have a more toxic loan book relative to to European banks, but there are pockets of weakness in Europe, in particular in Sweden, I'd say, um, which is a very interesting um, topic because Sweden is typically a canary in the coal mine uh, or canary in the coal mine. And the reason is that they have an extreme private debt level. They have an extreme exposure towards floating interest rates and they have a relatively extreme exposure toward real estate in general. Uh, and we see a clear credit contraction already now in Sweden, and we see weakness in these exact pockets that we fear from a credit perspective. Um, so let's yeah. see whether it spreads to, to the rest of Europe. My point being, on the surface, the loan books look more toxic in regional banks in the US, but I also find clear weaknesses in Europe. That's my point. So you're talking about loans, which makes me interested in specifying one thing um, a credit crisis for banks is something that the central bank cannot backstop so every time you see these deleveraging episodes this credit stress like uh, the housing crisis for instance and the rest it's at that point a real severe potentially systemic crisis for the banking sector because the central bank cannot backstop the value of collateral there i mean if the collateral of that loan is the house price in the US or the, or the offices uh, price or the vacancy rates or whatever it is in the housing market, the Federal Reserve cannot do anything about that, at least not directly, right? While if it's limited to a liquidity crisis as in ensuring that the value of the collateral stays intact, yes, the Federal Reserve can do a lot about that and it has already done that. So it's hard to foresee how a crisis becomes systemic when the value of the very collateral, which is supposed to be the problem here, treasuries, MBS, etc., can basically be restored back at par by the central bank with the facility. 
And if there is a credit crisis, I'm sorry, but the Fed cannot um, deem house prices to be higher than what they are and stop a credit deleveraging episode. That's why credit stress is the real problem if we see major credit stress. We have talked a lot about the housing market here, Andreas, also six months ago, where people were still saying that, you know, it's never going to go down. The point is, we have seen some cracks here and there already, yeah. right? I mean, Blackstone defaulting on a commercial mortgage-backed security, getting redemptions from their funds. Have we seen a major credit event in, in real estate or elsewhere, actually? The answer is, nah, not really yet. Are we going to see one? Yeah, I think it's in the cards, but it hasn't happened yet. And that's, I think this distinction between a liquidity stress and a credit crisis is something that people should bear in mind. Yeah. And obviously the tricky thing here is timing now. Um, yeah. The mood is, is pretty damn okay out there. <laughs> now that, I mean, we've seen this like a contained trend uh, when it comes to deposits leaving banks. Um, if we look at the monthly flow into, or sorry, the weekly flow into money market funds, it was just above 60 billion relative yep. to numbers above 100 uh, the two weeks prior. So slightly better numbers. There is still some central bank out there um, almost maxing out the FEMA repo facility of dollar liquidity at the Federal Reserve. Now 55 instead of 60 billion, but uh, it basically had the facility maxed at 60 throughout the week until the actual day of the reporting. So. I mean, I've, I'm still kept in the dark on who this is, and I have a lot of theories, and I cannot prove any of them. Um, it would be fun if it was the Germans, <laughs> because it's no, it's probably not. And I agree, agree with you; it, it cannot be the base case. But the only reason why they would do it would be to keep things anonymous, right? But ultimately, they will not be able to. So I, I still think we need to look east to find the, um, yeah, the recipient okay, of this. Let me degrees. let me propose a hunch. Yeah. Should I? It's more than a hunch, actually, but let's say it's a hunch only. And the answer to this $60 billion question could actually be Switzerland. It could also you're be like, Switzerland, yes. You're like, what are you talking about? They have swap lines, right? I mean, why would they use the FEMA repo facility? They can just access the swap lines. Okay, so here the answer is a bit interesting. Let me go back and open the, uh, some trays of memories from when I was running money. When I visited the Swiss National Bank uh, back in 2017, I think it was, German government bonds in repo were trading at about 100 basis point through ECB deposit rates, which basically means in plain English, if you own German bonds as collateral and you give it away to somebody in repo, you are basically ensured to make 100 basis point of free carry just by repoing the bonds out. They were so scarce, everybody wanted that collateral because QE was absorbing all of it, right? Mm. The Swiss National Bank, of course, owned a bazillion of bonds, shots, and obols, right? All these German government bonds because of their uh, monetary operations. They tried to suppress the value of the franc. They need mm. to buy euro assets, of which mostly German government bonds, right? So I was asking them, like, wow, guys, you must be making a lot of money on these German government bonds by repoing them out. And um, actually it turned out to be that they were not repoing them out. They were contributing to the stress in the repo market because they were not providing the collateral back to the market. Why am I telling you this story? Is because 
Many central banks are very orthodox in the way they operate and sometimes also not ultra efficient from an operational perspective. It just comes with the big machine that they are. Mm. It might just be, Andreas, that they were preemptively tapping a facility where they knew that operationally they were there because in the FEMA repo you just post treasuries, which now they, they do, they post just the collateral and you can raise money there. Maybe it could just be that that facility turned out to be quicker for them to use than dollar swap lines. And because of the Credit Suisse story, if you look at, at the dates of usage, it was actually during the very moment when they had that issue. So it would just maybe precautionarily getting $60 billion in, you never know. I mean, Credit Suisse and UBS and the Swiss system has a lot of dollar exposure on the asset side. Yeah. It might just be they wanted to turn some liquidity on the liability side as well and use the repo facility. This is my hunch. Yeah, it's it's a decent theory. I, I admit Thank you. that. So um, let's see. We will probably never get the true answer um, unless swap lines start getting utilized and we can match the numbers. In in any case, Alf, I think we can move on to the next topic because I mean we kind of end up concluding the same as the institutional investors over here in New York that the European system is probably slightly better equipped to deal with the current situation in banking. Yeah. But ultimately, if push comes to shove from a credit perspective, Europe yeah. will face the exact same issues, maybe even worse. Um, so I guess from a timing perspective, I, I understand why people are buying the euro versus the dollar now due to like this um, relative discrepancy between banks in the US and Europe. But ultimately, yeah. I'm not sure that it is a good story for the euro versus the dollar. And that could be the next topic because, I mean, clearly getting a consensus story again now that the dollar needs to be sold off. Um, the Fed will not hike anymore, if anything, one more. And then it's clearly a cutting cycle after that. Um, that is the overwhelming consensus here. Um, they, they, It seems like most major players over here have told the Fed not to move a lot more. That's also in the impression I get, right? Um, so they are under a lot of pressure from that perspective as, as well. So one more hike or a pause and then a clear cutting cycle commencing. Should that be dollar negative? Well, on paper, yes, uh, from an interest rate perspective. The issue is that if the cutting cycle commences due to a credit issue, then it's not crystal clear that the dollar needs to weaken as a consequence That's of this. We, we know that this first move towards dollar cash is is typically pretty sharp in such such a situation, right? But uh, before we talk about the Fed and the dollar, shall we first talk about the dollar in light of um, the headlines? I mean, you have this thing that a couple of times a year, you get a couple of headlines, Andreas, telling us that the dollar is dead. It's <laughs> over. It's over. It's, it's, it's over. It's over. So I think first time was probably 1980s where the story went that the dollar was done. Uh, we're still here 40 years later. The dollar isn't done yet. Uh, maybe it will. Not sure during my lifetime. Probably. I don't know. But the headlines this time, Andreas, were that China and Brazil are transacting in their own domestic currencies. They're not denominating goods and commodities in dollar anymore, or at least for a portion of them. And also that China did an LNG trade with France, I think it was, in Remimbi. Mm. So tell me why this is not a signpost 
for the dollar death declared as 31st of March, 2023? Well, first of all, let's have a look at the list of what I call prerequisites for a reserve currency. Um, yeah, sure. First check, check mark is, is this currency used in global trade? That is the first check mark. And we have a few very, very early signs that the yuan is now used a bit more. But it's very, very early. And it's a fraction of the total trade, right? That's number one. It's not even a check mark in front of the yuan. It's, from a front basis, it's improving. But clearly not there. Second thing you would need is a strong, liquid, and big underlying bond market priced in Chinese renminbi. So essentially, as an FX reserve manager, you want investable, liquid, high-quality assets. Um, and there is a reason why there are no yuans in global FX reserves, because there is no decent bond market. I mean, um, it's as simple as that, and I don't think it will change anytime soon. And then obviously, on, on top of that, you would also need less capital controls, if any, uh, a free-floating yuan, and I could, could go on. So maybe we are so, so, so far away from the yuan being a competitor to the US dollar from a reserve perspective. Um, and I mean, then we haven't even discussed that China would probably need to allow for a massive trade deficit for this to work as well. So the exact opposite of their current business model. Um, rule of law, something I would like to mention as well. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> maybe as a prerequisite. But yes, I mean, the, the story is, look, we have basically decided that the world could lever up in dollars so that global trades could be denominated in dollars, that a company in Brazil could sell to another company in China denominating their stuff in dollars and they would all transact in this currency. It facilitates a lot of stuff. What it also does, though, is it makes the system more dependent on dollars because people lever up they borrow in dollars despite not having access directly to dollar liquidity unless for global trades. So when trades are running well and there's everything is smooth, you know, you're, you're levered in dollars, you have dollar coupons to pay on your debt, but you get money in dollars as well coming yeah. in because global trades are going strong. Now, how are you going to move away from a system that has about 12 trillion dollar of denominated liability dollar denominated debt sitting outside the US if you're going to all of a sudden walk away and make no trades in dollars anymore How, where are you going to get your dollars from now onwards to to pay your dollar liabilities well the answer i get is well fuck it they're not going to pay the dollar liabilities that's great because it shows the rest of the world that you are a reliable business partner from a day to another, you're going to default completely on your trillions of liabilities. So, I mean, a change in global reserve currency is not something that happens overnight. And if it happens, it's a very explosive event. It comes with stuff that you don't want, like wars, basically. And one day we'll get to change the system, but it's not because China and Brazil will start trading some stuff between each other in another currency, I'm afraid. No, but I don't know why it made the rounds again this week on like all social media channels, but I saw so many bad takes on this and it always annoys me. 
because it's clickbait. Selling fear works very well. Anyway, uh, let's let's have a chat about um, something else that is not the U.S. dollar and the Fed. Right? It's been a while that we don't do that. So, um, shall we talk about our friends in Japan? Maybe. <laughs> well, I, I actually want to bring something um, sure. forward. Yeah. So, I, I pondered the other week whether this could be the best timing scene over the past two to three quarters to move the needle on the yield curve control again in Japan. Yeah. Um, they have a meeting in April. Um, the bond market is much more stable than it was a few quarters back. Um, liquidity is being added um, from a few of the larger central banks in contrast to a few quarters ago. I think they can sneak a 25, maybe even a 50 basis points move in the 10-year yield curve control out there without harming the market too much. And they couldn't do that just a few months ago. So this is a great window of opportunity for them. and. God knows whether this new governor will utilize it. Well, I like the rationale as in, if you want to make an impression, the first meeting is great because you know it's your first opportunity to shine and set the, the tone basically for your tenure. Um, do you remember Lagarde's first meeting? That was also a great uh, way to set the stage. We are not here to close spreads or something like that. Yeah. And then, pff, they just ballooned all the way wider. But anyway, you can make an impression, basically, to prove my point, right? And uh, I think the window is, is good. I think, apart from the window, from a political perspective, uh, the wage negotiations are pointing to 4% wage growth in Japan. It's the highest in three decades. Core inflation in Japan, services inflation is also trending almost at 4% annualized. You know. Those are not negligible numbers. And if you want to try and change something, then I think this, this looks like a good window. Um, the, the thing is, I mean, we discussed about the Japanese yen already a couple of times, but it's a, an interesting asset to consider in portfolios. If you expect the global economy to trend lower over the next few quarters, it, the yen is a defensive currency, so it generally benefits from... Uh, slower growth environments. And now we're talking about higher interest rates in Japan as well, which obviously benefit the yen too. So it could be something to consider. But obviously the, the widow maker trade is to be short Japanese government bonds, right? I mean, yes. people have tried this for a decade and it never works. Um, let's see if this time works, but maybe the odds for once are better than, uh, than average on the trade. So I actually didn't receive a lot of feedback on this uh, Japanese idea of mine this week. Uh, but what I did receive a lot of feedback on was my idea that China is still underpriced from a sort of a rebound perspective. Um, a lot of the investors I've met had the viewpoint that this was a story of like November, December, January. So it's always something that we've been through and so on and so forth. So I guess the reopening, who cares? I mean, by now. My point to them is that if you look at credit data in China, also money supply and such measures, 2022 was, from a credit perspective, in particular in real estate, a Lehman-like scenario in many ways in China. Um, extreme sell-offs in credit. Uh, and what we've seen since November is very strong stabilization of 
the credit market in in, um, in China. Uh, and I doubt that we will see a new landslide in, in that market, given that the authorities are now moving the needle in uh, an easier direction, both on fiscal and, and monetary policy to a large extent. So point being that um, construction, which is currently still deeply underwater in China, um, extreme uh, negative move year over year in the amount of housing starts and all that stuff, I tend to think that there is a good chance that such components of the Chinese economy will start rebounding like crazy later this year. So if we look at the Chinese economy as of now and look at the most timely indicators we have, this is a classic reopening of the service economy. That is what is rebounding. Box offices, um, travels and all that stuff. While the manufacturing sector is actually not doing that well, uh, or the construction activity is not doing that well. But I think there is a bigger time lag from the positive impulse from the money supply and also the positive impulse from a more stabilized credit market. Um, and it may show up in the second half of the year with a big construction boom in China. That's basically my base case. Look, in general, if I put China in the overall macro context, now we start Q2. We have had a washout in Q1. Many hedge funds have suffered double-digit losses. Uh, they were busy selling volatility in the bond market. didn't work very well for them. Um, they were blown out. It's it's now been a couple of weeks that implied vol has coming is been coming down, Andreas. I mean, things have calmed down. There have been no other bank defaults. Things have calmed down a bit. The equity market has reacted well. Bond market volatility is coming down. So as we enter Q2, you have a chance that you have fresh budgets and risk limits as well to be deployed, right? And you have people basically waiting for things to calm down a bit further to take exposure back in the market again. What exposures do you want to take if you have a risk limit right now? So if you've avoided a a systemic banking crisis, you are looking at, you know, chances to take risks somewhere. And even if you get a slower uh, macro environment going forward, your base case will probably be that you don't drop off a cliff straight away in April, right? You you get back into weaker macro data, softer inflation prints maybe. Sounds a bit like soft lending again. This kind of vibes, right? You get the scare, the scare doesn't materialize, but it kind of paralyzes the system a bit further. Before you get a credit event, it might be, Andreas, that people are like, yeah, you know, it's just you know soft lending, it's fine. Things are coming in, but it's not dramatic. So what do you want to take risk towards? Um, anything that benefits from a weaker dollar, a more proactively loser fed, you go back to this kind of risk premium compression trades, carry trades, emerging markets. China fits the bill pretty well, I think, because it also has tailwinds from the reopening. And people are telling me, well, Alf, you know, if they had reopened, why it's not in the data yet? And I think your analysis is upped there. I mean, you have it in some data, not in all of them, like look at services PMIs, But for instance, look at flights data, like alternative kind of data. Domestic flights in China are up 40% year on year. International flights, zero. You know, China hasn't really reopened yet completely as well to its outside borders, but temperatures are going to get better. The holiday seasons are coming, and it takes a little bit of time for credit to flow into the economy. It's not like you switch a light and it's there. But Q2 might actually be, at least at the beginning, a decent environment for um, yeah, these assets that are exposed to a 
kind of nothing happens, nothing bad happens scenario, this inflationary vibes again. Mm. It might be you get a window actually that in which China performs well. I do agree. Yeah. So um, you can either decide to park your money directly with the Politburo down there or, or decide to do it via proxies. Uh, I'm probably a bigger fan of the latter, <laughs> to be very honest. I still find that political risk to be a bit too elevated to 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 have a lot of money parked directly in mainland China, to be, to be honest. But Elf, I think... It kind of concludes the discussions that um, that I've had with investors here in, in the U.S. I mean, still a consensus that the U.S. banking system is worse off than the European banking system. Still a clear consensus that dollar will have to sell off more and that the Fed is ish done. Uh, they cannot do more and they have been told so by the financial system here. And also still a consensus that the European Central Bank always lacks the Fed. Um, It's a very clear playbook, and we've probably seen that playbook ahead of other crisis, uh, crisis events, right? So what I don't think um, fits the bill right now uh, in terms of our discussion is that the consensus is not super long China. Um, they took a few chips off that table clearly uh, during Feb and, and early March. And that is, in my opinion, from from a pricing perspective, still the most interesting trade of what uh, we discussed. And then I, I I see no one discussing this potential um, violent move of the yield curve control at this perfect timing of doing it in Japan. So those are the two things I watch the most: China and Japan, because they are they are not on the radar to the same extent as I mean everybody's focused on this U.S. banking stuff. Yeah, which which provides with some opportunities. A, a great client of mine always says that a lot of stuff happens in the world at once. I mean, it's not like because the headlines are 90% about the US banking system that this is the only thing you should focus on, right? Things happen in the world at the, you know, every time. And it's good to have a real global macro outlook. So sometimes reflect on Europe, the UK, China, Australia, Japan, because stuff happens. And I tend to agree, um, just writing a piece now for the Macro Compass clients exactly on that, like everything that is not the US, right? That's what I think from time to time it's good to focus on. Yeah. Andreas, I think um, it's fair to say that as we both agree on something, namely China, it's time to short China, right? I mean, there is, there is <laughs> never a, a better contraindicator than you and I agreeing on a trade. I mean, come on, guys, go out and short China. Yeah. You're free to do so out there, um, or or else um, please leave your comments if you want us to create an inverse ETF. We've also discussed that. <laughs> But uh, um, Elf, the final thing I, I wanted to touch upon before we um, before we leave it uh, is where to find more about the uh, article that you just mentioned. Yeah, so it's on the macrocompass.com every week. I'll try to make sense of what's happening in macro and put out some trade ideas as well. So it's not only blabbering, but also actionable. Yeah. Andreas, where do they find your work? So we've done a lot of work again this week on commercial real estate exposures of various banks. Um, and I mean, I can guarantee you that not a lot of people cover this because as soon as you start saying something about commercial real estate exposures of banks, you get calls from investor relations from <laughs> banks with the worst exposures telling you that there there are reasons why the numbers are not entirely correct, blah, 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 blah. Uh, never mind. Um, if you want to find 
our coverage of, of the banking situation. And in particular, an article that I actually haven't talked a whole lot about, um, but we've showcased how European legislation after 2008-2009 is based on false assumptions in the liquidity coverage ratio. Um, so I have a lot of data on corporate relative to household deposits in European banks. And the underlying assumption in the liquidity coverage ratio is that the household deposits are more prone to volatility and to deposit flights relative to the, uh, corporate deposits. But in Europe, we've seen twice the um, outflow of corporate deposits relative to household deposits, which means that the underlying assumption in the liquidity coverage ratios could be at least partly wrong. You can find it at stenoresearch.com. That was all. <laughs> All right, guys, this was it for this Sunday episode of the Macro Training Floor. We'll talk to you again next Sunday. <laughs>